And I think we all know that we act differently at those times. Uh, our middle child would get really, really crabby when he got a little bit hungry. We'd always, uh, well, it's a television commercial, we'd just give him a Snickers or something. But uh, We act differently when we have any of those uh, things going on in our lives. Researchers have found that for someone with addiction issues, these four states leave them particularly vulnerable to go back to their addiction. So they suggest that before you take a drink or pop a pill, stop and ask yourself if you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And if the answer is yes, then find a substitute rather than going back to the substance abuse. Well, whether or not you have a substance misuse problem, and I don't think any of you do, we're all vulnerable to self-sabotaging or unproductive be hungry, uh, behavior when we are hungry or angry or lonely or tired. You know, Pam had COVID sometime in the past. I don't know how many months ago it was, but she was in the hospital for 10 days, I think. And, of course, I was quarantined. So for 10 days, I sat in the house with nothing to do. <laughs> Well, that's not true. I like to bake, so I baked a lot, but then I ate a lot, and neither one of those were good for me, but uh, also I slept a lot. But I was very lonely during those 10 days, and in fact, made contact with some of the people I haven't had contact with for probably 20 years. We started texting because they were also lonely because of the, the COVID restrictions. But when we're lonely, it, it affects us when we're hungry, when we're angry. It's a real problem in our world today for people to be hungry and to be lonely. And I'm afraid there's an awful lot of anger and an awful lot of being tired because people are working two or three jobs. But I learned something interesting this week. I, I wasn't aware of this. Loneliness has become such a problem that the government of the United Kingdom and of Japan have both created federal government departments to deal with the problem of loneliness. They both have a secretary of loneliness. I don't know. I don't know how one person could do much to stop the loneliness in the entire nation, but the Japanese minister of loneliness says, I hope to carry out activities to prevent social loneliness. Well, that's probably his job, but I don't know how he's going to do it. Along this line, a young Japanese man named Siho Morimoto, I think I'm close to the pronunciation, uh, got a lot of media attention last year when he began renting himself out to strangers with this quote, hire me to do nothing, unquote. And he meant that literally. You can hire him and he will do absolutely nothing except sit with you and let you talk. For $96, he'll show up and listen to people who want support or a chance to vent their feelings. And since he has begun his business, he has be had an endless stream of grateful clients. He's accompanied people to appointments that they didn't really want to attend. He sat with them during the pandemic. He listened to exhausted healthcare workers detail the stresses of their job. He's walked in silence beside people who just wanted to go for a walk but didn't want to go alone. According to Sohi, or Soji, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, 
He said, my greatest value is to just be with people and do nothing. Now, I've had some employees who thought that was their greatest value too, but uh, I think this is a different situation. He just keeps people from being lonely. Well, when I read the Bible story that we're going to read in a little bit, I wondered if Elijah maybe should have rented a person who does nothing to just stand by him when he had countered opposition to his ministry. He certainly had a lonely job. Elijah was a prophet called by God to bring the nation of Israel back to worship of, of the one true God. In 1 Kings chapter 18, the people of Israel have been led by their queen Jezebel into idolatry. Jezebel has introduced the people to the worship of the nature god, Baal. And you know the story probably. Elijah has just arranged a public showdown, a contest between the God of Israel and Baal. The 450 prophets of Baal put on a dramatic show trying to get their nature god to burn up the sacrificial bowl laying on the altar. Poured water around it. Elijah poured water around it. Poured water over it. And very quietly said, God, send the fire. And in moments, fire poured down from heaven and the sacrificial bull was a burnt offering. And the people of Israel bow down to worship the one true God once again. Uh, they turn their back on Baal to worship the true God. Now, if this was a work of fiction... The author would have written about the worshipers lifting Elijah on their shoulders and carrying him in the front of a massive crowd while everybody applauded and shouted and screamed and, and maybe even poured a bucket of uh, Gatorade over him like they do at the sports events. I mean, that's the way the story should end. He just had a traumatic, dramatic experience, the fire falling from heaven and, and consuming this bull. But that's not fiction, so that's not the way it happened. Instead... The queen became very angry and sent a messenger to warn Elijah that she was going to have him killed. Now, I don't understand why she did that. If you were going to kill somebody, you wouldn't think you'd send somebody to warn them. But she obviously wasn't very smart because she was worshiping Baal in the first place. So she wasn't a smart woman, evidently. And she warned Elijah that she was going to have him killed. And Elijah, who has just seen God answer his prayers in an awesome and miraculous way, stands up and shouts, I'm not afraid of you. Oh, no, that's not what he did, is it? Instead, he ran. He's afraid, and he runs straight in the wilderness and asks God to let him die there rather than be killed by Jezebel. He ends up on Mount Horeb, the same mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments and where he met the one true God. And God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I think that maybe is a good question for all of us to ask ourselves. What are you doing here? Not here. I know what you're doing here. But how many times in our lives do we slip to someplace where we shouldn't be? Maybe an area of doubt or an area of just questioning things that don't need to be questioned. Uh, maybe even an area of sin. And God says, what are you doing here? I remember many years ago, 
I don't know, maybe 60 years ago. Uh, as I told you before, in the Salvation Army, we used to every Saturday, Friday and Saturday night go to all the taverns in our area and distribute a magazine and talk to the people. And one night a man said, I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. And he said, I bet I know the Bible better than you do. I said, I wouldn't argue with that at all. You may. He said, well, I have a degree from uh, one of the universities in Minneapolis. He said, I, I've got a degree. I said, well, I don't. And he said, uh, I bet I, you name any, any scripture, any reference, and I can tell you what it says. I've memorized the entire Bible. I said, that's wonderful. I have a hard time remembering one verse. And he said, well, then why, why are you in here condemning me? I said, I'm not condemning you. I'm just handing you this magazine. He said, well, when I read that magazine, it condemns me. I said, well, I guess don't read it then if you feel condemned. And he said, well, I suppose you think I shouldn't be in here getting drunk. I said, I don't think anybody should be anywhere getting drunk. He said, well, you don't know why I'm here. And I said, no, I don't. And he said, and I'm not going to tell you. Go on your way. So I did. But every a young lady usually did that for me instead of me. Part of the cause of going in was collect money, and the young ladies got more money than I did, and she went often. But the next week she was in, and he did the same thing with her. And the next week, and the next week, and the next week. Finally, one week he came out to my car and said, why don't you ask me what I'm doing in there? I said, what are you doing in there? He said, running away from God, just like Jonah. I said, well, you know what happened to Jonah? He said, yes, I do. And we never saw him again, so I don't know if he just found a different place to drink or if he changed his life. But what are you doing in here? What are you doing in this bar getting drunk? What are you doing here doing, you know, whatever? He said, God said to Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah said, well, I've been very zealous for you, God. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Loneliness had turned into fear, which in turn had turned into bitterness against God. I think we can probably all relate to Elijah's struggle. Perhaps even tonight there's someone who's trapped in the same place as Elijah and really never confronted it. How did this happen? And what can we learn from Elijah's story to protect us from discouragement and giving up? We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. Just a few selected verses, not the whole chapter. Uh, verses 1 through 4. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then I lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Jumping down to verse 8. 
And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And again he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. What are you doing here? Go back the way you came. And I think often we need to go back the way we came. Back to the beginning of our Christian life and, and work it through again. Let God solve the problems that we have been facing. Well, the first thing we learn from this story, I think, is that God doesn't respond to our shoulds. Have you ever struggled with disillusionment and anger toward God because God should have done something different in your life? I think probably most of us have. I don't know the secret struggles that cause you to question God, but I bet we've all got some. I mean, God should have healed my sick child. God should have kept me from having that accident. God should have kept my house from burning down, whatever. You know, God should have done this because I've been serving him. I, I, today, as I was going through this message again, I remembered a time that Pam were both, and I were both saying this many times. We were at the church in Norman, and we just had a big influx of teenagers. And we had a lady who had just come back to the church after being gone for a while who said, I'll work with them. And she did. The Sunday school class grew. The Wednesday night teen group, group grew. And these kids loved her. And she had a real ministry with them. And that went on for, oh, about a year and a half. And we went to uh, my brother's in, outside of Chicago for Thanksgiving. And we got a call that night. The person who was renting the parsonage, because we didn't live in the parsonage, called and said, somebody just knocked at the door and said, I should get a hold of you and tell you that Juanita is dead. So I got a hold of Juanita's family and found out that the girls, her two daughters had gone out. When they came home, she was asleep on the couch. They tried to wake her up and realized she was dead. She was in her, what, middle 30s, I suppose, maybe early 40s. And I remember Pam and I both saying, why did God let that happen? We've just got these kids coming and we don't have anyone else to work with them. Why would God do that? 
God shouldn't have allowed that to happen. And we drove with a 10 or 12 hours home, and I know as we were driving along the way, every once in a while, one of us would say, God shouldn't have let that happen. Now, I'd like to say there was a happy ending and somebody else came and locked, worked with the kids and the youth group, but that didn't happen. One by one, the kids kind of disappeared. We didn't see them anymore. And I still wonder, why did God let that happen? There were all these kids who needed a leader and he allowed her to die. I don't know why it happened. In my mind, God should not have let that happen. But he did. And only he knows the reason, and only he knows the purpose, and only he knows what the end is. And I don't know how many of those kids she touched are somehow, someday going to find the Lord again or going to a church someplace else because of the seeds she planted. We never know. I was thinking this morning, as I mentioned, the big Sunday school you used to have. I know some of you have kept in touch with some of those young people, but I'm sure there's some of them that none of you have any idea where they are but you don't know what's happened to the seed that was planted in those Sunday school classes. We'd never know. Yes, we can think, well, God should have kept them all coming here and we'd have a huge church. That wasn't God's plan. It's not the way it worked out. But I'm guessing that when we all get to heaven, there's going to be a whole lot of those kids who come running over to Sunday school teachers they had in this church 20, 30, 40 years ago, whatever, and say, I'm here today because of your class. Do you think so? Think I'm right? I just, I have to believe that. We can't say God should have, and he didn't, and so I'm mad. We have to say, I don't understand why God didn't, but I trust him because he's the one who's faithful. Uh, Dr. Clarence Jordan, uh, somewhat was in Elijah's situation. He had a PhD in agriculture and a PhD in Greek, and a PhD in Hebrew. He probably could have found success in any field, but one day God gave him a radical calling and he sacrificed everything to see it through. In the 1940s, Dr. Jordan established Konania Farm in Americas, Georgia. Now, Konania is a Greek word that refers to the Christian fellowship. And that was Dr. Jordan's vision for the farm. He wanted to create a community for poor people both black and white, to live and work together in Christian fellowship. Well, in Georgia in the 1940s, that wasn't a popular idea. Uh, having the black and white people live together in the same community and work together and share the crops and share the income caused a lot of problems. And just like Elijah, Dr. Jordan's vision from God stirred up all kinds of trouble. He got death threats. The townspeople decide to boycott the farm and refuse to buy any of their products and refuse to sell them anything they needed to farm. So they had to travel a great distance to sell their products and to buy what they needed to farm. And so the farm and its vehicles were vandalized. One night, some of the members of the Ku Klux Klan came by and destroyed every vehicle so they couldn't get their products to sell, nor could they get the supplies they needed. A couple nights later, the same group came and burned down every building on the farm. Dr. Jordan recognized the voices of some of the men. They were all members of the local church he attended. The next day, a reporter from the local newspaper showed up to find Dr. Jordan hoeing up the ashes from the burned buildings. 
And the reporter said to him, do you have any idea who destroyed the farm? And Dr. Jordan said, yes, I recognized many of their voices. Yours was among them. And the reporter said, oh, no, no, not me, not me. I, I would never do that. He said, but I do want to talk to you. He said, uh, you know, you've put 14 years into this farm and you've struggled through a lot of hard times and, and now there's nothing left. How successful do you think you've been? And Dr. Jordan said, I don't count success. I only look at the cross. Now, what does it mean when God doesn't respond to our shoulds? Why doesn't our faithfulness and our obedience earn us protection, security, prosperity? And you can go to some churches and be told that your faithfulness to God will earn you prosperity. I probably should have gone to one of those churches. Maybe I'd have learned how to be prosperous. I don't know. But I didn't, and I'm not, but that's all right. Uh, but what is the point of following God if it doesn't earn us earthly rewards? A lot of people ask that question. Why follow God? Some of you met my friend Jamar that came one Sunday with me. He's got a brother or stepbrother and said to Jamar one Sunday, I said, does your brother go to church with you? And he said, well, I, I tried to get him to go, but he said, why should I go to church? God's never done anything for me. And I think that's a feeling of a lot of people. God hasn't done anything for me. Why should I go to church? Author Max Lucado describes his idea. He writes, my first encounter with faith came about the time I became a Boy Scout. I was about 14 or 15. And I made the logical conclusion that they operate the same way. I treated my faith like earning a merit badge. And everything about Christianity was about earning merit badges. He said, and when I do something really great and didn't get the merit badge, I questioned God. Where's my reward? I think maybe that's not an unheard of thought amongst Christians. Hey, I go to church every Sunday. Where's my reward? The Bible makes it clear that there's no such thing as a merit badge for Christians. In fact, God sometimes allows those who follow him not to get merit badges but to become martyrs. And that's the second insight we can get from Elijah's story. The literal definition of the Greek word martyrs is witness. God calls every single one of us to serve as witnesses to God's work in the world. And like a witness in a court of law is called only to tell the truth, we're called to witness to God's truth and God's goodness, to witness to God's value system. And that witness includes both our words and our actions, our lifestyles and our priorities. But if our faithfulness always resulted in obvious and immediate blessings, we would probably become nothing more than God's cheerleaders, God's PR team, not God's martyrs. Faith requires struggle and obedience. It requires sacrifice. It requires never knowing if God's going to rescue us or if he's going to remain silent and let us go through the struggle. 
This is how we live as witnesses to the reality of the one true God. Bishop uh, Latimer served the Church of England in the mid-1500s under King uh, Henry VIII and also Edward VI. One Sunday he preached a bold sermon that happened to offend King Henry VIII. And he was ordered to make a public apology and to retract everything he had said in that sermon on the next Sunday or lose his head. Apologize for preaching God's word. I wonder if Bishop Latimer spent that week struggling with, with God over what to do. I wonder if he prayed, I've been very zealous for you, Lord God Almighty, and King Henry has rejected your message and insisted I re can't or he's going to kill me. I'm the only one left. What am I to do, God? Well, I don't know what went through Bishop Latimer's mind that week, but I do know that the next Sunday he stood up and to trans, uh, translate his 1700th English into today's English, he said, Hugh Latimer, do you know who you're speaking in front of this morning? You're speaking in front of the high and mighty monarch who has threatened to take away your life if you offend him. But then consider this, Hugh Latimer. Do you know where you come from and who sent you to preach this message? The great and almighty God who is all-powerful and able to cast your soul into hell. Who should you offend, King Henry VIII or the Lord God Almighty? Hugh Latimer, make sure you deliver your message faithfully. The king was a little taken back that he would even speak those words, but the bishop upset the king even more when he preached exactly the ser same sermon he had preached the week before. Who should we obey, the king or God? Sometimes following God leads to martyrdom, not merit badges. And the final insight we can receive from Elijah's story today, the cross of Jesus reminds us that faithfulness is in our power and the outcome is in God's hands. Faithfulness is in our power. We make the decision to be faithful or not. You would expect that God would respond to Elijah's fear and loneliness and desperation with some kind words of comfort and, and some revelation of how God was going to avenge him against Queen Jezebel. I mean, even tell the prophet, well, you know, you're tired, just take a few days off and go rest. But instead, God said, get up, stand up on this mountain and walk through that desert right back where you came from. God sent Elijah from Mount Horeb in the extreme south to Damascus in the extreme north, a long journey back through the land where Jezebel was plotting his murder. And that long journey was through a perilous desert to an uncertain end. And isn't that exactly the life God has laid out for those of us who love him? God calls us to faithfulness in our journey not success in our endeavors. Your journey will probably be filled with joy and pain, hope and sorrow, strength and struggle. 
Just as God showed himself to Elijah before sending him back into the world, God has shown himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He has walked in our shoes. He shared our suffering. And his painful, humiliating, and lonely death on the cross looked like the ultimate failure to the world. But it was through Jesus' long and difficult journey to the cross that God brought eternal life and reconciliation and restoration to all of humanity. The cross is the answer to the question, what is the point of following God if it doesn't earn you earthly rewards? There probably is no point if all you want is earthly rewards because our rewards are in heaven. Doesn't mean we won't get any here, but our great reward is in heaven. And that brings me back to the story of Dr. Clarence Jordan. You remember I left him out in the fields cleaning up after a group of Klansmen who had set fire to his farm. And a reporter who was one of those Klansmen who also taunted Jordan with the words, you got two of them their degrees and you've put 14 years into this farm and there's nothing left of it all. Just how successful do you think you've been? And Dr. Jordan looked up and replied, about as successful as the cross, sir. I don't think you understand Christianity. We are not about success. We are about faithfulness. So we're staying on the farm. And they rebuilt the farm, which is still operating today with the same purpose and the same goal. Once you become a follower of Jesus, you give up on measuring your life by earthly standards of success. Because our success is not earthly. As Dr. Jordan said, we are not about, or what we are about is not success, but faithfulness. I think we would all want God to use us in some spectacular way. I think most preachers would love to have the ability and the ministry that Billy Graham had, but there was only one Billy Graham. I think most Christians would love to have great recognition because of your great works for God, not recognition because you want to be great. But we'd love to do great things for God. And some of us are not called to do great things. Just plod along and do our daily life, knowing that God's going to use that faithfulness as much as he's going to use anybody else. Our greatest usefulness to God is in our servanthood. It's in our desire to love and to serve and to witness as Jesus did. We must not let loneliness or fear or frustration quench the Holy Spirit of Jesus that's working in us. Because we're not about success, we are about faithfulness. Would you stand together? We're going to sing a song in closing. Song number 700. To